0: And welcome to Dinesh Guarda Cities ABC YouTube podcast series. We are a fast-growing YouTube podcast thought leadership channel focused on profiling global leading inspiring people. We invite the ideas, products, inventions, software, books and solutions to the multiple challenges and opportunities we face in our cities and nations with the advent of society 5.0, fourth industrial revolution of 4AR, AI, blockchain, fintech, IoT and more. And as well how can we enable a more innovative culture based on startup uh, ecosystems and as well a bit more focus on sustainability and improving a lot of the challenge we have when we face to um, the emergence of technologies and all the disruption that comes with it. This YouTube channel is distributed on citiesabc.com that is as well the the platform we created around this and there's a new 4AR wiki platform for cities and citizens and this is distributed as well in the other platforms openbusinesscouncil.org, intelligenthq.com and Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud and we're reaching right now around uh, more than 10 million people per month which we are very happy and working to make it bigger. So today we have with us um, William Bao Bin, which I'm quite excited to interview. So welcome to the podcast, William.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: So you have a a fantastic CV and as well, very uh, geopolitical balance because you were growing up in the US and you are in China. So I'll read a bit of some of your highlights, which is impressive, but just some notes and then we start. So you are a general partner of the company SOSV, the accelerator VC that is the second most active angel and seed stage investor in the world in 2019 with 700 million dollars at the management and that SOSV uh, you are the managing director for the shine accelerator the first accelerator to launch in asia and the only accelerator in asia to have a unicorn come through its program bitmax the one crypto exchange in the world by trading volume and as well you are the founder and managing director of mox and you join uh, SOSV from Singtel Innovate Ventures, where he was uh, a founding managing director supporting China investments. And prior uh, to this, you were been a partner at SoftBank China and India Holdings, and the venture capital firm backed and soft, by SoftBank and Cisco. And as well, uh, you spent 11 years before in the equity research and analyst, and most recent with the Deutsche Bank, where. Um, William was a top-ranked analyst for Asia internet and China Tech Media and Telecom, and worked on IPOs for Alibaba, Kingsoft, and Yelong. And as well, you've been as well working as a top three stock picker in China and Hong Kong, for one, uh, and number one for technology, which is quite impressive. Um, and this was something by uh, Tom star StarMine. And as well, we've been working a lot in equity research. So it's a big pleasure, William. I have a lot of questions for you. I'll try to keep it. But I think the first one is, um, and I always start with the basis. So starting as a Chinese, or at least an American Chinese, and all a mix, um, how do you define yourself? First of all, I think that's important for the global world we live. And how did you build this fantastic profile that took you from all the parts of the world but working with different countries from the United States right now to China.
1: Yeah so I I grew up in the US and I'm I'm half Chinese and half Scottish. Uh, My parents families both went to uh, the US quite early Uh, so I I look at uh, myself as a bit of a bridge. I grew up uh, now Um, In the U.S., uh, but now been in China uh, for 25 years and 10 months. So I've actually lived in China, greater China, longer than I have lived in the U.S. Um, So in terms of the career, uh, I'm a technology analyst, uh, both on the equity research side for 11 years, but now I'm focused on early stage venture capital. Uh, And for a long time, my role was to help global investors understand Asia, understand China, and understand technology. Uh, and I went from that role when I was explaining technology to other investors, and I just, you know, you know, what's Alibaba 2005, helping them with their first IPO, uh, to moving over to the investment side myself. Uh, so I've been an investor now as a VC as a since March, 2007. Uh, and what we're really focused on is helping early stage startups from around the world and Asia build their business up and then go cross border uh, to Asia. So we're helping companies from around the world enter some of the most competitive markets in the world, China, India, Southeast Asia, uh, and even within Asia, go cross border. Uh, So think about it uh, from as a child, uh, you know, more like a a bridge myself uh, being kind of half and half uh, and also through my career, uh, where I am investing in uh, companies from all around the world, but helping them bridge into uh, the very fast growing, extremely competitive markets that are China, that are
0: India, that are Indonesia. Okay, I love uh, Scotland and Chinese and American, which is three completely different than, um, countries and different as well ways of living and putting yourself. So before we go more deep in terms of your fantastic career and and as well still in the beginning, so. What would be, let's say, from your education, uh, and you study in the United States, but as well, like you said, with three major different cultures on the side, how did you manage this culture balance? And I think this is particularly interesting for people around the world that are struggling to understand all the geopolitics and all different things. And as well, right now, you are based in China, which is, of course, the the leading Technology and powerhouse in the world is passing the United States, whatever the U.S. <laughs> realizes or not, and I think everyone realizes in the world. So, how do you see these kind of nuances in terms of culture, and how did you cope with this as you grew and they study as well? Uh, and with all this different background. My mother grew up in China, but then
1: spent most of her childhood in the U.S. My father, I mean, we're Scottish, but we left Scotland 300 years ago after we got our asses kicked by the English in a small war. So uh, um, my my, my family is on the... the, uh, Father's side has been in North America for 300 years. Now, the, the challenge is that uh, a lot of people come with baggage, right? They, they have uh, you know 10,000 hours worth of experience to become an expert in something. They are of and of culture. Um, and um, you know, as with startup, uh, so is culture. So when you're doing a startup, you're doing something that you've never done before. You do not have you know 10,000 hours of experience. You don't have 10,000 hours of failure. Um, you're doing something that's never been done before, and so you're going to fail. Just like a child you know, learns how to walk, uh, they're going to fail, they're going to fall over. Uh, and so we take this sort of uh, startup approach where you fail, and then you fail again, and then you fail again, but then you learn. Well, going into a new culture, going into a new market is the same thing. You need to leave your baggage behind, you need to leave your experience behind, because your gut instinct whether it's developed in uh, say Belgium or New York City, your gut instinct when you come to China or when you go to Bangalore or you go to you know, Delhi, um, your gut instinct is probably gonna send you in the wrong direction, right? Because it's built on experience, on mistakes uh, in one culture. Um, but when you apply it to another culture, it just simply doesn't work the same way. Uh, so, if you take what's called a lean startup approach, where um, you experiment, you throw things out there, and then you actually look at the data, and you take your preconceptions or your experience and you put them aside, um, then uh, it becomes a lot easier to go cross border, to go into new markets, to 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 attack. Uh, new problems um, with uh, with solutions, uh, because you are getting data from the source as opposed to coming in uh, with whatever you came with before so you know a lot of people in Silicon Valley we call them uh, naval gazers, you know they think Silicon Valley is the center of the earth, and whatever comes out of there is the best, but a lot of times what comes out of Silicon Valley is good for Silicon Valley or is good for America, but when you take it to China or you take it to Asia, it fails. The reason why. Is because it's solving a problem that doesn't exist over here so the best way to understand a new culture is to go in and jump in and and actually just throw things out there and see how um, the culture the customers the people the consumers respond to it measure it okay and then keep on iterating Uh, and that's what we do uh we personally that's what we do with the startups that we work with. Uh, we've advised companies from LinkedIn to Evernote to Airbnb as they come in. Uh, our main bread and butter though is we invest in startups and help them enter the market um, and, and build businesses here. Uh, and this is a market like China where I am now in Shanghai, Google got their asses kicked. Facebook, you know, Amazon, toast. So how can a startup come in and succeed where these giants have all failed? Um, it's by understanding uh, the local culture, uh, understanding what works and what doesn't work and listening to data and not your gut instinct.
0: Yeah, th- This is key and I think it's particularly interesting uh, for your profile and I think your career. So you start as an analyst and you work with Deutsche Bank and, and a lot of very yeah. high profile uh, investment firms and of course SoftBank and which is one of the biggest investment uh, platforms in the planet. So that career of course gave you a huge wealth of experience and actually what is interesting is SoftBank for instance an example is American sorry it's Japanese but it's very global and I think it's one of the things I admire for instance in SoftBank I would like to start that because being like you said the a bridge between different cultures but as well being studying the United States and then coming back to China and like you said the world business right now is global but we have a massive perception right now in terms of geopolitics and different things. So how do you cope? Because, for instance, China right now is becoming the biggest economy in the planet by far. And as well, even these are words from Eric Schmidt. It's ten, one decade away from most of the world economy and most of the world technology. And this is words of Eric Schmidt, not mine. So how do you cope with that, especially with the... Uh, as right now, someone from your career highlights, let's say from an analyst that became an investor, and as well, managing a lot of companies.
1: So so, so basically, think, uh, think about it like, uh, you know, bubbles. Right now, we have COVID, right? COVID's a real pain in the butt. So we have COVID, and people are talking about bubbles. You create a bubble with your family. Uh, you create a bubble within, within your school. Uh, you're creating a bubble within uh, a country uh, like China. Um, and then hopefully there'll be corridors where you have several countries and, and, and cities that, um, are sort of a COVID free and they can create a bubble within each other. Well, we, one thing that we have right now is we have uh, legal and we have internet bubbles. Um, so you had, uh, who kicked it off? You know, China has been an internet bubble. Uh, they have their own laws here. In China and China internet is not actually the same as internet everywhere else. You can think about it like a bubble. So in, inside the bubble, everything works. When you try and go from one, one China bubble to outside, it doesn't work that well. Okay, and then what happened next is so we got GDPR, Europe. So we got the Euro bubble. They put in a bunch of laws and then European internet is now different than everybody else's internet. And then more recently, we had a bit of a US bubble where uh, people want to, without changing laws, make some changes uh, and almost like cut off um, uh, U.S. uh, and and make U.S. kind of a bubble. Uh, We've also seen uh, something similar happen in India recently where India is saying like, okay, we're gonna also uh, by law have our own internet, which is gonna be different um, than, than the rest. So what we're ending up with is not just COVID bubbles, we're ending up with internet bubbles. Now, our challenge here, Uh, because we focus at SOSV and through our China Accelerator and Mox platforms, is we're here to poke holes in the bubble. Like we've been helping global startups and companies enter into the China bubble, you know, for the last decade. Uh, And we've gotten, especially over the last six years, uh, since I went full-time, we've gotten pretty good at popping and making holes uh, under the bubble, through the bubble, over the bubble, like penetrating the bubble. But now the world probably needs us more than ever before, because these barriers are going up um, between uh, the different markets in the world. And you cannot ignore the number two economy, China, uh, number two economy in the world. You cannot ignore Europe. You cannot ignore India. You cannot ignore US. And so people like us who are in the business of building bridges, who are big fans of globalization, who are trying to break down barriers are in a tough spot right now because we have the challenge, a challenge, a huge challenge um, where, um, you know, the barriers are coming back up. And uh, before, you know, it was a lot easier, uh, but now we've got a much tougher time uh, popping those bubbles or not even, we're not gonna pop the bubbles, penetrating the bubbles and creating bridges, uh, creating entryways uh, where companies uh, can thrive. And it's a major problem for innovation when everything is open, innovation flourishes. But when everybody's stuck in their own bubbles, we end up with four versions of everything. There's a lot of wasted effort. Uh, and our role uh, as a venture capital firm and also as a cross-border focused uh, accelerator platform is to break down those barriers and make it possible uh, for our amazing entrepreneurs to bring their creations, not just to one bubble, but to the entire world.
0: Yeah, this is I, I completely hear you and respect these words. It's, it's it's nevertheless very complex and I think it's going to be more complex before probably it goes better. So one question I want to uh, and go into your career right now. So from your experience working with the likes of Deutsche Bank and SoftBank and some of the biggest uh, equity and investment houses and, and banking in the world, what would be the takeaway from this part of the corporate world um and then moving to the startup world where you are building not only uh, some unicorns and i want to touch of course a bit max and, uh, as well um Building an entire ecosystem that is key because, in the end of the day, it's building ecosystems that flourish. If you look at the success of SoftBank, is probably in one or two successes, there were like 100 failures, and as well the continuation of innovation and flourishing, and, and even breakthrough for things that most of the people think in 10 years or 20 years ahead. So, what would be from the analyst? And let's say your career started as a very conventional analyst, not conventional, but very high profile analyst, and then moving completely radical from the corporate to the, the startup world. How do you see these two worlds and as well some lights in your career?
1: I would say, um, you know, one of the most amazing things is trying to help, you know, trying to help people from around the world, investors, uh, understand China. Uh, and this is back in 2005, 2006, uh, when we were, I was working with Jack Ma, Jotai and and, and, some, and Savio, who is like the, the head of culture, and, and John Chi, who is head of IR, to try and help bring Alibaba public. And one of the most amazing things about Alibaba is their original business model, which is B2B, uh, was solving a problem of that time. Uh, The Alibaba and the Ant Financial you see today has almost nothing to do with the company that we took public or I helped to take public uh, way back in in 2005, 2006. Uh, But the the problem oftentimes remained the same. How do you understand a market that you're not familiar with? How do you understand a business model that you do not see in your home market how do you invest in something without being able to visit it? It's a problem we have with COVID today. How do people write checks when they can't actually sit down and have a coffee with somebody? Uh, it, it's very difficult. Um, so from that experience, uh, I saw you know, a lot of uh, people make a huge amount of money. Um, and the, the one thing about being the top ranked analyst in, the, in, in China and Hong Kong is that you're the top ranked analyst in China and Hong Kong, and I got bored um and so i took a 75 percent pay cut to do venture capital um my family's not too happy because it took me about 10 years to, to to start making money again um maybe because when i went to vc i did not know what the hell i was doing um and so i had to learn uh and it was a very painful experience um i did two startups uh the first one failed the second one um, actually ended up uh, having the chance for success but also failed. Um, so going through that process, the same as any early stage entrepreneur really gave me the tools uh, and the fortitude uh, and the basically uh, we call it cockroach approach, but uh, basically the ability to take a few hits, uh, lose a leg or two, and keep on going. Um, resilience in early stage and resilience. Um, in, uh, in this market is what's really, really, really important. And so um, that was a, a journey. Uh, I can't say it wasn't uh, painful, uh, but I learned a lot. Uh, and um, we got better over time, right? So the companies I invested in at SoftBank, some of them did okay. Uh, the companies I invested in when I was at Singtel, which was a corporate VC fund, whereas one of the three founding MDs, uh, 2010 to 2014, we did better. In those six years since I joined SOSV running uh, a cross-border internet with my partner Oscar, we're we're taking it up to another level Uh, and uh, really um, uh, doing quite well now. Uh, And we've got a, a unicorn here or there, although... Um, you know, they're having trouble with uh, their legal bubbles. You know, BitMEX uh, has uh, tried to stay out of, uh, you know, in, in, in the global bubble, but the, the U.S. bubble keeps on, It uh, seems to be attacking them. So that's a, that's a fun one for another day. Uh, but um, the, the challenge of uh, moving from kind of a traditional career where you work in a bank and you wear a suit and you do the same thing day in, day out, and then you jump off the cliff, uh, do something completely different, something that you're not necessarily prepared for. You know, it's both painful, but it's extremely exciting. And I really encourage um, anybody out there uh, who um, is thinking about being an entrepreneur, um, you know, to, to, to give it a shot. I mean, you don't want to jump blind. You want to jump based on data. You want to jump based on hard work. You want to jump based on not just doing it by yourself, doing it with co-founders. And I mean, we run accelerators because it's really hard to jump off a cliff unless you've got that support system and people ready to catch you. Um, but it's very important to, uh, to, to make that jump um, if you really feel the passion uh, and desire to do so because you only get one life. Uh, so you might as well live it to the fullest.
0: I love that, and I, 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 it, at least is my motto. So one uh, one thing before we go to S O uh, S V. So in terms of let's say you mentioned Alibaba, Alibaba is right now becoming probably one of the first companies in the planet, uh, and I think if you, if you actually see it from Western world, from taking all the politics, it's probably already one of the biggest. You Mm -hmm. took it public, okay. And when you took it public, you had money from SoftBank. You were taking it public.
1: Uh, I, before the actual IPO, but you know semantics, semantics. Yeah, before the actual IPO, so I didn't, I, I I prepared for it, but I didn't actually have to do the work.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I understand. No, but you were involved, so that's what I think it's key here. So that experience, I think, I want to touch that as making a parallel as when the time that happened and now let's say this was just kind of like a couple of years ago but that shows that in a couple of years ago China became um, became from being um, one of the let's say 10 years ago was very poor economy with a lot of issues and right now 10 years after is the powerhouse in the world with a, a decade of evolution ahead of the rest of the world so that experience with the with Alibaba and I think especially you coming from America Um, I'm sure there was an interesting um, uh, contrast let's put it that way and as well like you said uh, Silicon Valley is this centric that they are at the top of the world and they're forgetting the rest that is the world is much bigger than just Silicon Valley in the US so I I would be that experience in particular I think that is interesting for the the people listening to us and especially of course like you said Alibaba and then finance finance. so independent of how you like it the innovation has been massive Uh, the business has been massive as well, the number of users and as well all the change it did in the world. Let's be honest, in a lot of ways Alibaba has been changing much more than Amazon. Although Amazon might be more valuable from a Western perspective, but there's a lot of different things that sometimes the mainstream doesn't see. I would like just to touch that uh, from your experience with that particular case study.
1: Think about um, uh, history. You know, I, I'm not a technologist, I, I'm not an engineer. I actually studied history uh, in my undergrad. And so uh, you have a lot of history in the U.S. and North America and Western Europe. Well, by, what I mean by that is you have, you know, hundred plus years of retail history. There are stores, there's a Macy's, there's, um, you know, there, there's a H&M, there's like a, you know, a long history of just say retail. So what happens with e-commerce? Well, when you come to a com- country like China, they, they, they have like 20 years of retail history. They had a long long history before the communists came, but then that the, the went away. And then just over the last 15, 18 years, they, they, they have retail. Now, what you get when you bring technology to this uh, is the ability to leapfrog. So a lot of people in America or North America or Western Europe, they have this image in their minds of emerging markets or developing markets. And they look at everybody's income and it's like, oh, they're only making $8,000 a family or in India, they're only making $1,000 a family. We're so far ahead of them. But the thing that uh, they don't understand uh, and and it's quite amazing is that um, they also don't have the 150 years of baggage Uh, so they can take technology like a smartphone and they can leapfrog. Uh, such that you've got 25, 30 percent of all consumption in China happening online and through e-commerce versus, you know, 10 to 15 percent in the U.S. Uh, you move much, much fetch faster uh, because you do not have all that infrastructure. You don't have that baggage. And so that's what we saw in the 15 years since Alibaba, uh, you know, get, we getting ready for their first IPO uh, to now. Um you know, China is 15 to 20 times larger than the U.S. in terms of uh, mobile e-wallet usage. You know, 15 to 20 times larger. So the last time I checked the numbers, you know, U.S. was, you know, 50 billion a year in mobile e-wallet. China is 12.5 trillion a year. And that was like two or three years ago. Now it's even greater. So um, uh, so the, the, the adoption of technology is is really what matters, I think. Uh, and so the opportunities here um, uh, become interesting because you have China, you have US, but what about the rest of the world and whose model are they going to follow? Are people going to follow the the, the US or Western Europe model? Whenever I go to the Western Europe, it's like going back in history because people are still using SMS. It's funny. Um, if you look at WhatsApp, it's like, uh, everybody's like, oh, I love WhatsApp, but it's a user interface is a piece of crap. So if you wanna look to sort of like the future, sometimes you have to look to those emerging markets uh, and what we call mobile first markets or mobile only markets where uh, people's only access to the internet is on a mobile phone. Their uh, first access uh, to the internet is on a mobile phone and and everything is, is basically mobile centric Uh, And all commerce, all business, all education, everything really happens on the phone. Um, It sounds like the future. Uh, Living here is a little bit like living in the future. Uh, And I think that people who live in other markets and other cities and other countries uh, could do well by spending a little bit more time, uh, not just listening to the media hype and the the bullshit about who's going to win the war, Uh, who's going to win the race that doesn't matter but just try and understand how other people use technology uh, and how that might influence the way the rest of the world over time uses technology
0: going right now to sosv the company that you're leading as well so you have at the moment 900 plus portfolio companies 150 new startups per year uh, 100 plus mentors it's quite impressive numbers um do you want to tell us about how the company was created uh, what are the goals where people can find information and so forth
1: sure so sosv uh, is a rebrand our founder's name is sean and his last name is O'Sullivan. Uh, but sos means help me help me and so we, we just call it sosv um, so uh, sean is an engineer not like me uh, he was a visionary or he is a visionary but he was a visionary in college so if you have a box and you type it an address into that box and it shows up as a dot on the map, 1986. He invented that. Um, he and his three friends, uh, you know, public on the NASDAQ, sold it for 400 million. Uh, and that was the basis for SOSV. Uh, he put half of the money that he got into a foundation for charity and charity and, and giving back is very important and core to what we do. Um, but he also put a money into a fund for investing. Uh, and it started off as his own uh, angel investing. He grew uh, to uh, you know 400 plus million dollars. Uh, and then in order to continue to support that, we started to take outside money and brought in outside managers like myself. Uh, so I joined in 2014, and we are able to do something unique in venture capital, which is innovation. The funny thing about VC is VC invests in innovation but there has not been innovation in VC since it started. And the reason for that is that the limited partners who give the money to the general partners um, have this feeling that they need to control. So they want to decide, oh, I want to invest in China. I want to invest in Europe. I want to invest in South America. I want to invest only in hardware. I only want to invest in biotech. I want to invest in internet only. I want to invest in, you know, you just name it. Um, and we think um, that that really ignores the progress that we've seen over the last 70 years, where you can't put technology or geography or innovation into a bucket. Uh, so we've been able to innovate uh, such that um, the eight partners in our fund can invest globally. Okay. The second innovation is that we have multiple verticals in one fund. No fund in the world is like us. We have hardware, we have biotech, we have food tech and ag tech, and Oscar and I run internet and software. And we are the most active investors in each of these categories. And now we're the number one most active VC in the world as of second quarter of this year, according to PitchBook. Uh, And we think that that diversity gives us uh, an unfair advantage when it comes to uh, investing because we are we as the number one most active investor in health right now, we have health biotech, we have health therapeutics, we have health food, we have health hardware and medical devices. And we also have health internet and, and telemedicine all under one house. And this would not be possible uh, without uh, having the ability uh, to do what we're doing, which is break the traditional LP rules. And then the last thing is we're early stage. You know, we're not writing, you know, 10, 20. We're not writing soft bank size checks, right? We're early stage. We, we invested 100K, 200K. We help um, young companies, not necessarily young entrepreneurs, but young companies uh, go from idea uh, to product, to market, to scale. And we do that by using something called an accelerator and most people around the world might know what an accelerator is but uh, the traditional money people they don't really see that the success in accelerators for us we're a vc we've always been a vc and the way that we deliver value to the startups that we invest in is through a set framework with mentors, with resources. Because when you're doing something that's never been done before, it's very important to have people around you to support you. Um, It's very tough to continually fail and smack your head against the wall when you're by yourself. It's very tough to build a a brand new drug if you don't have a $5 million lab that's available to you without having to spend 40% of your time writing applications for money uh, for grants, right? So we build a a structure and a a platform that allow amazing people to become entrepreneurs, uh, to take their ideas and turn them into reality. So that's kind of like the pitch. Um, But what we do is quite unique in the world uh, because uh, of Sean's vision. And because we've been allowed to innovate in a VC space, venture capital, that's not seen innovation uh, in, uh, since it started 70,
0: 80 years ago. It's interesting as well, the variety of the different areas that you're doing and as well, all the multiple city of being as well in China, but as well having a very international background. So I want to touch that part as well. And I know that you own as well, China Accelerator and, and as well, the mobile uh, MOX. So do you want to just contextualize? First of all, how do you deal with all the challenges with geopolitics? And I think I want to touch that because it's really a big, crazy thing right now. And this is actually mostly only happened in the last couple of months, so one year, because before that, I think everyone knew that you were to be, but now it's becoming a bit crazy where we have really people afraid of things and going to some extremes that are some, in some cases, ridiculous. But uh, we have to desmystify that. So probably desmystify that and then, of course, look at your fantastic achievements in different areas of the company.
1: Fantastic takes time. Just remember, uh, we invest in early stage companies. Uh, our funds, we're long-term. It's 10 years plus three. Um, I started doing this in March of 07 after I left Deutsche Bank. And I just started to make money like a couple of years ago, just two years ago. Uh, so, um, you know, success takes time. Uh, But in terms of what you just mentioned, geopolitics and all the different bubbles, our job is to help great entrepreneurs bring their innovations to the world, make the world a better place. Our job is not to get involved in politics. Our job is not to take a view on who's right and who's wrong. Our job is to help make the world a better place in terms of using technology, especially deep technology, whether it be blockchain or CRISPR uh, or AI, and we're the leading investor in these three areas in the world, bringing technology to solve fundamental problems for the planet, uh, not just one of these bubbles, okay? So um, frankly, I don't really you know, talk about politics and it's not relevant to what we do here. Uh, and it actually just gets in the way uh, of what we really focus on, which is trying to make sure uh, that our entrepreneurs can do what they do. Uh, and, you know, from being at like, uh, you know, with cellular agriculture, uh, cutting the amount of water required to create food for the earth uh, to Uh, What we do with coffee farmers, where we allow them to get to market without having to go to eight different middlemen, and so that the the people who want to pay $2 for a nice cup of coffee can actually know with surety, because it's based on a blockchain, that that coffee bean that's in their coffee cup came from that farmer in Colombia, and that uh, we can track that whole entire chain. Um, I mean, we're, we're bringing technology to solve problems. Uh, We're not trying to solve uh, uh, the problems of politics. So, uh, yes, it's complicated, uh, but uh, it's not our role. Uh, We can't be a commercial bridge, uh, especially me being here in in Shanghai, uh, if we're trying to be some sort of political bridge. I'll leave that to uh, our brothers and sisters who... Uh, do their yeoman work in the diplomatic court
0: so in terms of the achievements um of uh so as uh, so so what what would be the the main areas and i know that for instance we touch bit max that is right now at least at this day in a and not in the best moment, but I'm sh- you have a lot of other things. Uh, I don't want to talk as well about the negative. Let's talk about the positive things because I'm sh- you have uh, with 900 companies in the portfolio, let's focus on the good ones. So, uh, and as well, what would be the highlights that you have?
1: I can't speak to the current situation in BitMEX, but when we invested in the company, uh, we were investing in a company that was using technology to open the ability to invest in financial products. And when we first started off, we were looking at an S&P 500 ETF derivative, right? So an S&P 500 ETF is basically, uh, according to Warren Buffett, one of the best investment products in the world, right? It goes up at least over a 10 year period very well. We wanted to make that possible for somebody with a smartphone in Indonesia to put five bucks in so that they can save for their child's future. Okay, that was the vision. And then of course we have the bubbles. You have to abide by the law of the countries in which you operate in. And and it's the same with the US, it's the same with China, it's the same with every nation. And and so um, the vision though, was to break down barriers and allow people who, uh, might have a smartphone, it might have money, but they don't have a bank account, they don't have a credit card, they don't have like a Fidelity or a Vanguard account to get access uh, to financial services, and that's the vision. And hopefully, over time, uh, that will continue to happen. Uh, but in terms of uh, what we're doing now, um, and and this is also a bit controversial, uh, in that um, we, or I, am not really into big internet, Okay. I mean, just because you have, like, these uh, company, you know, corpor- like, the legal bubbles, in the same way, we also have company bubbles, right? You have Amazon as a bubble. You have Google and Google family as a bubble. You have Facebook as a bubble. You even have Apple uh, as a rich person's bubble. Um, you have Ali bubble. You have Tencent bubble. You have lots of different bubbles, and they're trying to create uh, these super app ecosystems, now, the problem is that, it, that those bubbles kill innovation, in my view. And as an early stage investor, we run across amazing entrepreneurs building amazing products. Uh, and they put their products out there in one bubble or another. And it doesn't matter how good they are. It doesn't matter how much people love them. It does not matter that they solve a problem that could save the world or at least you know save people some time, or at least maybe entertain some kid for 20 minutes while they're waiting for the bus, because based on the way big internet is structured, no one will ever see their products, especially in North America and the West and outside of China, unless you pay money. It's a pay-to-play market, right? And Google, Facebook, they control 85, 90% of the global mobile ad market. Um, so the people who have the advertising space, they make this much. The people who want to buy the advertising space, they pay this much, right? And then what's in the middle? Well, that's a trillion dollars plus market cap for Google and Facebook. And I don't blame anybody for having a business model, but hopefully they don't blame me for trying to screw it up. So our role here uh, is to identify by everybody who is getting pressure from Google, Facebook, Amazon, Ali, Tencent, you know, all these big big internet and we try and partner with them. So, um it's a uh, who's getting pressure banks, retail chains, shopping malls, uh TV stations, You know, you even have like, uh, um, you know, not not just the real estate companies, you have the brands, you even have food chains, right? Um, You have telcos, handset brands, white good brands. Basically traditional industry is under a huge amount of pressure from big internet. And they should be because they didn't innovate. Um, So what we're doing with MOX, our mobile accelerator, is we're investing in all the different services that when you turn on your phone, you find on the first page, right? We invest in the companies, the best of the best from around the world because no one else is invested in these companies because they don't really make any money. You know, they have to pay this much advertising to make this much revenue. It doesn't matter. So we invest in all the apps and then we partner with banks or telcos or smartphone brands and we give them a trade. You know, you have, they have users, they have trust. We have products that don't make lots of money, but do make money. And advertising doesn't make anybody money. So if you, the bank, or if you, the cell phone brand, or if you, the TV station, or if you, the shopping mall, promote our apps for free, we will give you revenue share long-term. And we're going back to uh, barter. Remember, if, if you ever studied economics, We're going back to the barter system, um, but it's a little bit more advanced. So you promote us, you give us users, and in return, we'll give you revenue share. And we just cut out big internet. Now, five years ago, I started to do this. Five years later, we got about like 50, 60 million monthly active for our MOX users, the apps that we've invested in. And the key thing is that the customer acquisition cost has been zero. Think about it like a, We're not a platform. We're completely decentralized. It's a mutual support group. And it's double opt-in, which means that nobody has to promote anybody else. Nobody has to take promotion and give revenue share. It's basically an ecosystem that survives on mutual benefit. And the only people who don't benefit is big internet because we're cutting them out. Now, I don't have billions of dollars I'm writing really small checks you know I'm writing 150k checks but we had a company last year last June that had zero users zero revenue but some amazing technology that where you put traffic in with good content they're using a chat bot and AI to help convert to sales right so we invested in June by November you know we, we introduced them to some of our partners by November they had 24 million users and they were doing over a half a million a month in in, in sales. And our check was uh, 150K. And by January, uh, they had more than tripled that sales and they're up to 40 million users. Again, with no advertising, with no customer acquisition cost. So what we're trying to do uh, here is change uh, fundamentally the way that uh, the internet works so that there is a chance for innovation to happen, so that there's a chance uh, for uh, uh, small, you know, entrepreneurs who've got amazing technology to be able to bubble to the top and have a chance. Um, so we look at it as the, you know, grandmaster master plan uh, to make sure that nobody dominates. Uh, the world uh, you know the the movies always like the grandmaster plan for global domination well this is a little bit like that but it's a grandmaster plan for making sure nobody takes over uh, we're five years in we got another five years to go after that I think I might be burned out uh, but uh, that's what we're spending our time on we've got 60 million monthly active users on the platform now uh, and um, we are finally getting some very large companies to support us because they don't have a choice. The big guys are going to just take them out.
0: This is a vision of decentralization, um, which is, of course, the vision of crypto, the positive vision of crypto. How do you see this kind of vision associated with blockchain inception and as well with all the crypto, digital currencies and digital economy? Let's put it that way.
1: I'm a history government double measure, but I took some economics and like uh, I we were the number four most active VC in blockchain and it wasn't my colleagues. So I, I got my uh, billable t-shirt, SOSV, right? Half the crap I didn't understand. I've never invested in a protocol because I'm a history government double major who took an econ class. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, I mean, I kind of understand markets a bit I and mean, I spent 11 years in equity research and um, you know, I studied a little bit here and there. Like most of these markets don't require um, a, a token to make them work. Now, some of them do, okay? So, uh, but I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm not smart enough, but it's not my area of expertise, therefore I passed. What did I do? I did blockchain fintechs. How do how do you take, now they call it DeFi, but basically how do you take, um, you know, uh, a new technology and open it up for everybody? And that's what we would do with BitMEX, and then you know you know america didn't want to play ball it's okay we shut off all the accounts as far as well not we since i actually have no control over what they do uh but um they according to what they say on their website um made it uh, impossible for anybody from uh, any jurisdiction where what they were doing was not in accordance with law to stop you know And, and uh that's the truth i really don't know you know so But we did it with a number of other investments, right? We're trying to open up financial services to low income, medium income. You know, people who are making $250 a month in total salary in India have a smartphone now. And that's a big game changer. So we're trying to use technology to open things up. Uh, And so we're, uh, most of the other 35 investments I did in blockchain. We're really focused on bringing blockchain transparency, security, and trust to large corporate. Um, Why? Because I'm boring and, you know, we like investing in things that make money and blockchain transparency, security, and trust probably will have the first chance of making money um, in corporates. I could be wrong. Uh, but uh, we, we we invested in a number of companies there. Now the interesting thing is, starting Q four last year, and I'm big into timing. So about a year ago, I didn't. I took a break. So I did blockchain fintech 2015 2016 DeFi, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then about a year ago, I did a four more blockchain fintech investments because now I think it's time for products, uh, and. Uh, so far, so good. I mean, Coverio. I was ex-Deutsche uh, Bank, uh, Bank of America Securities. It is a traditional, super traditional uh, prime brokerage, not like Tagomi or all the other guys who got Aqua hired out for like uh, pennies on the dollar. But they are traditional prime brokerage, basically helping traditional head funds and money managers Take advantage of the volatility in crypto, and enabling them to do full, you know, license KYC appropriate trading uh, of crypto, and and they're doing extremely well. They're Switzerland and Hong Kong. Uh, we have another company called Tab Trader, which is uh, also uh, quite interesting. In that, there's a lot of consumers, and they have one phone, but they have five crypto exchange accounts which means they have five different apps on their phone uh, and on which to trade. Now the problem with that is like, it's, you know, it's a pain in the ass. So tab trader allows them to have one interface trade off of their five, six, seven, eight accounts through one interface. We don't touch any crypto or, you know, tab trader doesn't touch any crypto at all. We're just a, a software company. Um, but um uh, you know, our users have over 3 billion US under AUM and that can be kind of useful uh, even though we don't, we're a software company in touch, no crypto ever. Uh, so these are, and the last one is Vega X. You know, it's an amazing uh, space. I don't know whether they're going to be a winner, um, but you look at the Fidelities, you look at, uh, you know, the Black Rocks, uh, Vanguard, um, you know, uh, Jack, Bogle I met him a couple times he's uh, the, the the founder of Vanguard I actually studied math in high school in Bogle Hall uh, at Blair Academy in New Jersey and he revolutionized turning the stock market into something that, that's a product that everyday people can buy and make money on without a lot of fees at Vervega X we're trying to do the same thing it's just basically a nice product where you can get exposure uh, to uh, crypto without having to deal with the massive volatility and, and keeping track of all the different accounts. Uh, we're trying to turn uh, it into a product just like an S&P ETF. Uh, and so, you know, it, early stage is, is, a, is a crazy place. We, um, we're not part of the herd because the herd, they're like sheep. Wherever they travel, they eat all the grass, it turns to brown. It all dies and at the end of the season the sheep either get shorn or slaughtered. We're, we're, we're kind of crazy We're out in front trying to do things that are a bit early a bit different uh, And one of the things that allows us to do this uh, Is that we invest in so many companies? Uh, so uh, we, we are allowed uh, to Make mistakes. We're allowed uh, to have errors. So hopefully um you know us this philosophy uh is uh is interesting and useful, and uh really appreciate uh the time uh, that you've given me today to to explain who uh s o s v is China cloud and mox and our approach uh to investing
0: so last question, and I want to touch your um your hat as historian and i love that to be honest I, I respect most of what you said because I, although i've been in crypto and blockchain i think we need and she's the first person i interviewed that is very blunt honest about that and i think we need that because there's a lot of for us right now we have all this craziness about uh, DeFi and uh, all these m- massive gains and for me that is kind of all rubbish because in the end of the day someone will pay the consequences. <laughs> Normally, are always the same people. But no, let's not go on that. So my question is, uh, and I think more positive, and I like the the approach you've been telling, which I think we need that. We need a bit down-to-earth approach towards business, especially with COVID. There's millions of people right now losing jobs. And like you said, most of the world population lives under $500 per month or even 200 or less. So, as someone that comes from history and, and investment as well, because investment, especially as an equity analyst, you need to do a huge amount of research. You need to look at the numbers, financial numbers. So we have two things that are really very missing in the startup world because there's this, like you said, let's change the world, let's be the next Google, and then we create another dystopian stuff. So how do you see this kind of, uh, especially in the work you're doing with the young startups and with all these companies that we invest how do you approach, first of all, the philosophy and the ethics as well, but as well the the sense of history? Because I think it's really important and I think that's why China, did they, this leapfrog and actually Asia is right now taking over again because it has a sense of history that is not just thinking about my backyard and my own belly. So I would like to hear your opinion and probably as the last question because I think it's key for, for as well for our audience and for our context.
1: So um, there's like four questions in there. I'll try. And yeah, pick
0: <laughs> sorry, my questions are all a bit mind.
1: <laughs> so we're early stage investors, right? And the problem I used to be a stock analyst, and you get numbers, you get spreadsheets, and you know you can believe them or not believe them. Who care? You know, Luckin Coffee, you know, that's are all fake. And most of them are fake. But when you're dealing with early stage startups, uh, not dealing investing, you're not. There are no numbers you know, there, there's very little to go on. You're investing in people, you're investing in um, basically a problem that they're passionate about, okay? And then and then there's uh, a third thing, which most people don't pay too much attention to, but for me, it's very important, there's timing. Because sometimes it's just not the right time to invest in things. And so uh, we have a, 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 uh, an approach that is very different than others, it is the most labor-intensive, or, or or mind-intensive way of investing, in that we get to know the, the companies that we work with. We meet them. We talk to them on the phone. We go out for a beer or whatever. You know all the all the things that you do when you're trying to invest in a company whose product barely exists, where the revenues are this big. And then, you know, it's like, and, and, and there's like a thousand beta users, but they're beta users, right? That's not what you would call data. There's no PNL. There's no balance sheet. There's like, if they did have a PNL and balance sheet, you wouldn't want to invest because they're spending on money and time on something that doesn't matter. So what do we do? We invest a small amount of money. Okay. Uh, We spend time together. We invest a small amount of money and and then we live together. Uh, Now, when I say we live together. Together, we don't live in. We don't like sleep together. But uh, if you can see behind me, this is not like the nicest office in the world. Where the anchor tenant in the first co-working space uh, in Shanghai, People Squared, they have forty places across China now. But it's not, you know, it's not like super fancy over here. Those are those are the, those are the companies behind me that are still alive. But we have something that's called a phoenix. It's a weird thing and we made up a name for it and it's on our t-shirts for our 10 year anniversary, but we've invested in a lot of companies and we've had, you know, a lot of companies die, which is normal, um, but we do have a community and there are actually, uh, so what happens, a company dies, you know, shit happens, whatever. But, you know, we in people who are entrepreneurs and it's like a bug. You do one startup, okay, my company died. Okay, it happened. I'm gonna do another company, another company. Our 400 mentors plus mentors, they're serial entrepreneurs. They can't really give it up. And, and, and it is, a, uh, to some extent, a lifestyle and a bug. Um, we have this strange thing where nine uh, um, of the founders after the company that we invested in died. They started a new company, sometimes on their own, sometimes with the same co founder sometimes with different co-founders. Uh, and they gave us free equity without us investing in the new company, just so that they can remain part of the SOSV, China Accelerator Mox community, um, because they thought that added value. Uh, and we call that a Phoenix event, and it's because it's ashes, but it rises up, Um, And and we really believe that, um, you know, it's hard enough to do startup. Uh, But if you can do that within a group, if you can do that within a community, and if you can do that with the support of other people who have done it before, uh, you have a much higher chance of success. And so that's the end of my pitch. Cheers.
0: Cheers, Now Fantastic. And I, I love that part, the sense of ecosystem and community, which I think is lost partly in the startup more aggressive world. So William, it's been a, a huge pleasure. We're going to be, well, there's a lot of questions, but I think one hour is already a lot. So we're going to put uh, um, um, all the links to SOSV. I want to thank you for your honest and very... I would say very kind of uh, sincere things that we need in the startup world. I think we need that honesty and I think that frankness and as well, the sense of community, because in the other day, we need to create value for our communities and it starts with the people close to us. We cannot just think about let's change all the problems in the world, but then we let the rest rot. So I think it's, it's very important. Thank you so much, William. Thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much.